0: Welcome to the fourth episode of Contain This, brought to you by the Indo-Pacific Centre for Health Security. I'm your host, Adam Craig. Today I'm chatting with Dr Stephanie Williams, along with our executive producer, Rachel Mason-Nunn. We've relaunched Contain This, and today's conversation is a chance for both Steph and I to introduce ourselves to you, our community. Steph is Australia's Ambassador for Indo-Pacific Regional Health Security. She is also the Principal Sector Specialist for Health at the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade and a Visiting Fellow in Applied Epidemiology at the Australian National University. She has previously worked in a range of roles, including as a technical officer in the Global Health Security Program at the WHO and as a medical doctor in MSF in Uganda. You'll hear more about Steph and my background during this conversation. I'm thrilled to be the host of Contain This. The podcast is more important now than ever and you'll hear Steph explain why towards the end of our chat. As well as introducing ourselves, this episode is intended to give you a taste of what you can expect from Contain This. We've got a brilliant lineup of guests, and we'll be having some really important conversations addressing the challenges and triumphs in health security in our region. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the show via any of our social media channels, which we have included links to in the show's notes. I'm your host, Adam Craig, and this is Contain This. Enjoy the episode.
1: Stephanie Williams, Adam Craig, it's great to speak with you both. My name is Rachel Mason-Nunn and I'm thrilled to be working with you on Contain This from the Indo-Pacific Centre for Health Security, supported by the Australian Government. We have a stellar lineup of guests over the coming months and today is a chance for our community to learn about you both, Stephanie in your capacity as Australia's Ambassador for Regional Health Security and Adam in your capacity as host of Contain This. And for those wondering what I'm doing here, I'm the executive producer of Contain This and CEO of Goodwill Media and Communications, the production agency behind Contain This. Starting with you, Steph, you're Australia's ambassador for regional health security. For our listeners that aren't familiar with what your role actually entails, can you tell us a bit more about that?
2: The Ambassador for Regional Health Security should really showcase the strength of Australia's public health and medical expertise and facilitate these linkages across the region in a way that brings to bear the opportunity for continued improvement in public health and health care, especially to the people of the Indo-Pacific region. I think the key to the role is really building relationships with health counterparts in the region as well as in the international sphere like WHO and UN agencies where Australia has a key role to play in advocating for better outcomes in health across the globe. When the Indo-Pacific Centre for Health Security was set up in 2017 with support from DFAT, It was actually really clear from the outset that the relationship between our public health community, communicable disease control, our scientists and social scientists and virologists and so many institutions from Australia existed between Australia and the Pacific and Southeast Asia and globally was already incredibly rich. And I think DFAT and then with myself as the ambassador, we can really act as a focal point and and continuing interface to broker and strengthen these relationships between the domestic, regional and international health players. I'm really proud to guide the implementation of the centre's five-year program to deliver more than $300 million worth of health security aid to make a difference on the ground in the Indo-Pacific region.
0: I think you're right. I think Australia's got such a great reputation in the region and the role that the Indo-Pacific Centre and and yourself are playing in capitalising on the the expertise of Australians and Australian institutions to support from an aid perspective but also from a a broader trade and social development perspective is, is really worthwhile.
1: Adam, that's a great segue into your own background in regional health security. Can you tell us a bit about that?
0: So, for a start, I grew up in Papua New Guinea, so I have a, a personal interest and connection with the Pacific Islands. You know, I moved to Australia when I was about 10 to northern New South Wales and ended up studying in University of Queensland. I did a Bachelor of Science before moving to Alice Springs, where I worked for Central Australian Aboriginal Congress and Nunganjara Pitinjara Women's Council, which really was my introduction to, to public health. You know, I got to see public health at the coalface, if you like, that inspired me to, move to Sydney in 2000, just before the Olympics, to do a Master's of Public Health at Sydney University. Through that, I got involved in different projects with different local area health services around New South Wales and did my public health training. Then in 2009, the big pandemic, or the big pandemic that wasn't, and I got an opportunity to go to Manila to work for WHO's regional office there in a hybrid role between communications and epidemiology and then surveillance too. So that role involved supporting different countries, set up early warning surveillance systems in response to influenza pandemic. That led to more than a decade of, of work across Asia and the Pacific for different organizations, including WHO and DFAT. To where I'm today, so back to Australia, did a PhD in epidemiology, looking at surveillance system design in small island developing state contexts, and I'm working as a researcher and lecturer at the University of New South Wales in, in their global health program. At this very point in time, I'm seconded back to the New South Wales Ministry of Health to be a team leader in the operations division of the public health response to, to COVID.
1: You've both also worked for the World Health Organisation. Steph, starting with you, can you tell us what that was like?
2: I've had a couple of opportunities to work with the World Health Organisation during my journey in public health, where I've worked with them in different countries, once in Myanmar, exchange in Uganda, although I was with the MSF at the time, and then at headquarters in Geneva. When I worked for Médecins Sans Frontières in Uganda, I remember seeing the WHO officers in the field for the first time and observing that they had a very clear coordinating role in the case where we were managing a a response to a crisis of internally displaced people in the early 2000s. Then later, during my Master's of Applied Epidemiology at the Australian National University in 2009, similar to Adam, it was during H1N1, the influenza pandemic, where there was a huge demand for public health expertise and epidemiologists, albeit not compared to the demand currently for that expertise during COVID-19 and in that setting I did a two month internship at WHO Geneva headquarters in their strategic health operations centre which runs the health emergencies program and coordinated global assessment and response to infectious disease outbreaks and that two month internship turned into a year-long transition to a job technical officer role doing the same function and my observations at that time were really about how sophisticated and engaged and connected to countries WHO at the headquarter level was. And that was through strategic use of their regional offices and good relationships with country offices. It's obviously not always perfect. These things are a constant partnerships and relationships always changing. But in the whole, I was impressed by the level of connection between what was a global function of threat detection, a regional office function of threat detection and response, and same down to the country office. And I think that although I was only there for a year, WHO as an organisation, I observed their capacity to bring huge volume of expertise and relationships to bear on particular problems or complex issues. It's not always easy to mobilise expertise quickly and I think now stepping back from with a different perspective during COVID-19, I continue to observe the importance of WHO's convening power and their norms and standards and evidence-based role and how important that is in shaping responses to this threat, especially in our region.
0: I share some of those views. I always perceive WHO to have these two different faces. You know, there's the outward-looking face, which is this thing that you see on TV—the General Assembly, is the the big meetings, and that leadership role that WHO has. And as you said, the convening power to pull people together to address issues. And and when that works, you know, it's it's beautiful to see from a public health practitioner's perspective. But the other side of it, I see, is that relationship building at the country level, particularly in in lower resource countries, such as some of the Pacific Islands, where we have small ministries who have lots of challenges. Having sounds trite to say, but having a friend in WHO in the office down the corridor who you can bounce ideas off, and having a friend who's got that weight behind them, really underpins and supports the decision-making processes of smaller states. I see, and I think that's you know I think again that's beautiful to see, and and it's a really important role that without the weight of WHO, countries would I think be in a in a more tenuous position.
2: Adam, I agree. It is not without its challenges. WHO's global budget is oft quoted to be just a fraction of what it costs to run a single hospital in the state of America or half the budget of the United States Centers for Disease Control. We have to marry that with its performance in hundreds of member states. When you have a good WHO country office with staff able to have supportive dialogue with health ministries and access the answers which In well-resourced health systems, we can take for granted. And I think of my experience in Australia where with an immunisation question as a Public health physician. I can call the National Centre for Immunisation Research and Surveillance and talk to any number of experts and run through my questions about whether to how one might run a sero survey to understand measles susceptibility in a particular population. And when such national expertise um, is not available, I don't think we can underestimate the value of having access to an organisation that links into Expertise, norms, standards and technical advice. In the same breath, we need to temper our expectations. Having the right staff in place in WHO country offices or throughout the organisation is a critical part of capacity to advise government on responses and how that transition between what the technical answer is to what the practical way forward is, that is a constant challenge that we have in making the value of the WHO country offices come to bear in a particular country.
0: Obviously, WHO is copying a little bit of criticism at the moment for, for different things. I truly really I don't think people appreciate what that organisation does with such limited resources. And again, I'll draw on the Pacific as an example. In Australia, if we are mounting a response, we'll have a team of people working on one issue. Whereas in the Pacific, we have a small team, Angela Marianas' team in Suva, who are five or six people max supporting 20 different countries, all with different health systems, all with different needs, all with different contexts. And to do that in a way that has been done for the last decade or more is a testament to the commitment of those staff, but also the system that supports them.
1: That brings us to the Indo-Pacific Centre for Health Security. Steph, starting with you, can you tell us why the health security of the Indo-Pacific region is in Australia's interest?
2: Well, COVID-19 has really brought that to the fore. The shared vulnerability we have as a globe through epidemics and pandemics is something that public health experts have been saying for as long as I can remember and the world in which we live now and the interconnectedness and the pressures that we put on the natural world, the challenges that health systems face in doing their day-to-day work, it puts us in, in a way at a constant risk of the ev- emergence of new diseases or the resurgence of old diseases and it's too often used but it, it actually suits a purpose. The diseases have no borders and to, to the earlier point this is a shared national, regional and global interest challenge. COVID is one of the best studies I've seen of interconnectedness and our shared vulnerability. What's so interesting is even with the threat of COVID cases, with no COVID cases, countries have moved so quickly to significant lockdown or restrictions of movement within their countries and between countries. And I think in part, some of that really reflects a lack of confidence in health systems in public health systems and really we can see the multi-sectoral impact of this crisis and all the fallouts but at the core the inability to say we've got this covered and that's been a shared challenge globally from least resourced even to high income settings comes back to the centrality of health and health systems and how the ability for them to function is key to mitigating the impacts of a response.
0: So I approach the question of why health security is in Australia's national interest in three different ways. Firstly, it's purely bio-epidemiologically important that we contribute to the detection and response to disease outbreaks. I mean, that's going to protect our populations, and that's, I guess, the most clear linear link between the effort that we put into regional health security and Australian citizens health. But secondly, you know, there's a whole social development angle there. Australia has a lot to to offer social development and the betterment of our region for both health gain, but also economic development that comes with that. And Steph, you mentioned earlier on about your role as the ambassador, and that's about leveraging those assets that we have in the country. And I guess thirdly, I see there's a diplomatic component there. Health security is topical. It's always going to be controversial. And by Australia being involved in regional health security, we have some influence in the way things go at a regional level. And we get a seat at the table, if you like. We can be engaged in and contribute to and in some to some degree influence the course of agencies like ASEAN and the Pacific Islands Forum big global or regional governance mechanisms that you know, really influence the way we as a Asia-Pacific region will respond to, to events such as COVID-19 and, and future pandemics.
1: Steph, what support is the Indo-Pacific Centre for Health Security providing to the Pacific during this COVID-19 pandemic?
2: Many of the health security initiative partnerships that were existing have really come into play in the response. A small but important example of this is that there were programs in place to strengthen infection prevention and control in some of the small island states, such as Tuvalu and Kiribati. Because of that, we had infection control advisors who were in place at the time COVID emerged, and they were able to reorient and support national preparedness for COVID straight away and were highly valued in doing so. There's also been a number of examples where our existing partners have been able to pivot towards COVID-19. And then there's what we're doing specifically for COVID. In the Centre for Health Security in DFAT, working very closely with our Pacific, humanitarian and Southeast Asian colleagues, very early on we had a coronavirus preparedness and response strategy. It had three pillars, preparedness, (laughs) response and medium-term capacity building. So in the preparedness we worked through our bilateral programs, so the health programs that DFAT already funds in places like PNG, Solomons, Vanuatu and through the Pacific to support each country's preparedness. And I can't state how important those existing relationships and programs have been to enable Australia and DFAT to assist The health response in these countries. Very early on, we funded the WHO Pacific Office Action Plan for COVID-19 with New Zealand and Australia, with Australia putting in 1 million Australian dollars, New Zealand 1 million New Zealand dollars to that plan. And as I talked today in mid-April, that has enabled the Suva office to respond to over 300 requests for assistance and technical advice, dispatch more than 68 shipments of PPE to pre position suppliers across the 20 countries and territories in the Pacific, and send individual experts to multiple countries. All of that is a constant source of support to the region. In addition, through an emergency fund allocation to the Centre for Health Security, we have been able to bolster support to our existing partners. A really good example is the Menzies Centre for Health Research and Maluk Timor, who are working with the Ministry of Health in Timor-Leste in infection control, case management and preparedness. And being able to surge support through our emergency allocation to Menzies Centre for Health Research has enabled the development of laboratory diagnostic capacity for respiratory viruses in Timor. That obviously suits the short term, but it will be a key long-term impact of our response to COVID-19. Another really relevant example is the very quick decision between Australia, New Zealand, WHO, SPC and the US to procure the earliest possible Shipment of Gene Expert COVID cartridges, which are for the rapid PCR diagnostic testing for COVID-19. And those Gene Expert machines existed in every Pacific country except Tokelau. However, we quickly came together to purchase cartridges and some machines for the Pacific uh, and working still as they come into the region to dispatch. And again, coordinated response with partners in enabling access to a critical supply laboratory diagnosis for COVID-19. They're all examples from the preparedness phase and I think at the moment we're really straddling preparedness and response in the Pacific and we're seeing cases increase in in countries close to us. And in this phase we are looking in a response phase very closely at what response is appropriate, feasible and sustainable in countries if an outbreak really takes off. And we're looking to work with partners and, and countries to think about what the combined effort in a response could and should be. I talked about the third pillar of this coronavirus preparedness and response strategy. Interestingly, I'm calling it that strategy because it was named before we called it COVID. That's how early we got on to this, is the medium term health security capacity building partnerships, which the Indo-Pacific Centre for Health Security has recently announced, which is 51.8 million Australian dollars through, I think, at least 13 partner institutions to multiple projects in the region that focus on improving capacity in infection control, surveillance, laboratory strengthening, field epidemiology, emergency operation centres and antimicrobial resistance and immunisation. I think I've got them all there. And those projects are really about what the ongoing needs are in those core functions in countries, which Australian institutions will partner with national governments and institutions to do. By virtue of the fact they've focused on core functions of health security, they will be making a direct impact on the COVID response in countries where they're
0: up and running. You know, across the board, Australia is one of the leaders in in this idea that we've got to strengthen the system within which health is implemented. It's not just about projects or chipping off uh, areas of specific interest to a country or, a, or one of its agencies. It's about building the leadership skills, building you know the health information infrastructure, the workforce capacity to deal with whatever comes along. Obviously, COVID is going to test that capacity probably to breaking point. We don't know. It's something that will be seen, but we've seen over the last 10 years, partly because of Australia's investment, but also the investment of other agencies, through those organizations such as who and the pacific communities real investment in addressing some of the the gaps within the health system that have allowed countries to respond. And I think there's been some good examples recently. I mean, if we look at how uh, Vanuatu is responding, for instance, to the current post-cyclone event, I mean, that's a really nice example of a country whose capacity has been built tremendously since Cyclone Pam a few years back, and that's the result of, of all this coordinated effort that has been put into into a specific context.
1: So to close now, can you both share your reflections on contain this and let our community know what they can expect over the coming
0: months? I see contain this has been an opportunity for DFAT and the Indo-Pacific Center for Health Security to start to tease out some of those more complex issues that relate to regional health security, issues such as how health security and gender interface or how we use technology in low resource settings to advance our detection and response to outbreaks. These things that play off the work that DFAT has been doing in the past and will do in the future and in a post-COVID world to engage the audience, the listeners of the podcast in those discussions and to hear from some of our experts, both within Australia, but, but also more broadly in the region. Experts being the academics and the practitioners in the field, but also the community members and the people who are having a lived experience of health security or lack thereof. I hope
2: that Contain This provides a credible voice and source of information in the global health security community. The relaunch of this podcast comes at a time when global health security is front and centre in the media landscape. So the need for discussion and debate on evidence is more important than ever, and especially discussions that are with people at the very heart of their field and practice in our region. As a production of the Indo-Pacific Centre for Health Security, this podcast plays a role in amplifying the excellent work of Australian and regional partners in strengthening health systems and will contribute to the evidence and policy debate about how we respond to the evolving health security environment. I'd also really like to see the voices of our health leaders in the Pacific on this podcast and in our region to really demonstrate how critical their contribution to the broader health security is and will continue to be.
0: That's it for Episode 4 of Contain This. You've heard from Stephanie Williams, Rachel Mason-Nunn, and myself, Adam Craig. Our episodes air fortnightly. Join us in two weeks for a discussion with leading health security specialists, Sarah Davies and Adam Cameron-Scott. In the meantime, connect with us on social media via the links in our show's notes. Stay well and speak soon.